Good afternoon, it's Monday the 20th of February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to have David Scott bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and Mark Anderson joining us from the United States. Okay, we'll get straight on then with uh, with this, with Oxford. Uh, so uh, on Saturday, there was, well, I don't know how many people were there, so certainly tens of thousands of people uh, to raise awareness of 15 minute city issue, lots of people speaking. If you want to see the live stream of this, uh, you can watch it on chd.tv. It's on the front page of the Children's Health Defence TV website at the moment. That's a chd.tv. Uh, but let's just uh, have a quick look at some video and this uh, just give you a feel of what was going on. And the two speakers here were first of all uh, a couple of seconds from Lawrence Fox and then a few seconds from Peter Ford. single day that we don't fight for our fundamental human right to be left alone to pursue our business is a betrayal of our children's future and a betrayal of freedom. Oxford is one of the new battlefronts as the establishment fight against people, ordinary people, to take away our freedom. The authorities try to play down the extent to which these traffic restrictions are about climate lockdowns, but that is what they really are. Um, so, uh, David, maybe get your thoughts on this, because uh, I think uh, the points that Lawrence Fox and for just for the couple of seconds there and uh, and Peter Ford were making were absolutely valid. In the sense that, particularly oh, uh, Peter Ford saying, you know, that uh, this is an attack by the, uh, the the establishment on the people. Yes, and I, and I think the significant thing is that that's been recognised, and I, it may be that this is one of the hangovers from from the whole COVID scandal that that we're we're in a country more aware of what the state can do, uh, more aware of its overreach, more cautious and less gullible, perhaps, because we've seen people really rally to what is what it's 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 traffic restrictions well, we've had those for a long time it's cameras well we've had those for a long time um it's it's restrictions on mobility where well, we had those for three years and and um, rather than just shrug and say oh it's more of the same we see people are not doing that they're reacting and saying no you're not on i find the oxford protest extremely encouraging I would agree with that, David. I'll also add that when we talk about the state clamping down and taking away freedoms, we've got to remember that it's local authorities that are, that are implementing that broader policy. And that means that local councillors are fully accountable for what's happening. So when people are protesting, they also need to remember uh, that their local councillors have abandoned them. They are enforcing these policies. And as we're, going to, as we're going to hear a little bit later in the news, uh, it's getting pretty draconian in other places. So great to see the protest. People want to have more, make it more potent. They should be uh, 
bringing their local councillors into the frame in a, in a measured and uh, polite, reasonable way, of course, but it's the exposure that does the damage. Um, so let's bring on an image from Stride. Now, uh, this is uh, quite a couple of years old, this image, but we'll, you'll understand why I'm bringing this up because the Crime Prosecution Service has decided uh, to discontinue the prosecution of two Stride freedom activists, that's Marcus Blackett, uh, and Richard House, uh, and they were alleged to have broken the Tier 4 lockdown regulations during COVID lockdown uh, that were enforced on the 9th of January 2021. So the charge was that of participating in a gathering of more than two people in a public outdoor place in a Tier 4 area. Uh, and, the C uh, the, the, and so the CPS has now issued uh, a notice of discontinuance. Uh, now they uh, were putting basically during lockdown, we're recognizing the fact that lockdown was having an impact on people. Uh, and so they and some other uh, colleagues decided to wear these uh, sandwich boards, you might call them, uh, entitled Citizens Conversation. And they were going around and trying to engage with people uh, in an appropriate way uh, during the lockdown, but they were arrested by what they describe as a, a pretty aggressive uh, policeman, police constable, police who knows what they are these days. Uh, they were arrested in the high street by uh, an aggressive policeman, as I say, for breaking coronavirus regulations, uh, for holding an alleged gathering. Um, and uh, well, basically what happened then was that they were, take, they were taken to the police station, eventually released, uh, but they were given a fixed penalty notice. They decided to, uh, they decided to uh, uh, counter the fixed penalty notice to, to oppose it. Uh, and that was supposed to go to court. Unfortunately, the uh, Crown Prosecution Service took it to court uh, and the police took it to court without telling anybody. So as a result, uh, they were found guilty uh, and they then decided to, to uh, oppose the, the guilty plea. They hired a lawyer. Uh, they took it back to court and the judge decided they were entitled to a retrial. Uh, and as a result of that, the Crown Prosecution Service has decided uh, to drop the case. Uh, so this, uh, again, Brian, a very positive development because clearly the Crown Prosecution didn't want to uh, acknowledge, uh, David, have you got thoughts on this, didn't want to acknowledge uh, that uh, perhaps there'd been a miscarriage or a, a miscarriage of justice in the first place in the sense that they weren't told they were being prosecuted or at least that there was a hearing? I, I would like to uh, propose a new, um, a new logo for the Crown prosecution service. I think we should have a red queen, you know, from a chess set. That's a nice striking logo. And of course, it goes along with the line that uh, that we have uh, sentence first, trial later. Or trial without telling anybody and just send the uh, well, the outcome to them. That's well, is, is, that, is that a trial? I would argue that's not a trial. That was in, just a sentence. Indeed. That was a sentencing hearing. Uh, well, agree, agree with that, David, and I'll just add that we've known over a great many years that particularly in family court cases, all sorts of tricks are carried out in the courts, that dates are changed at very short notice or the papers are, are not given to the defence uh, until a few moments before the court case. So we could really get into the state of the courts and whether they are independent and fair or they're simply an agent of the state. But the key bit here is that when challenged, they've obviously uh, lost confidence and buckled. Yes. Uh, OK, let's uh, come back to protest then. And of course, yesterday, as we mentioned on Friday's programme, was the Rage Against the War Machine uh, protest in Washington, D.C. Uh, now, if you go to the Rage Against the War Machine 
website. You'll see lots of uh, video footage and so on. But here is uh, just a little bit from uh, Anya uh, Parampil, uh, who's uh, uh, showing, well, pretty much scenes that we might have seen during lockdown protests in Hyde Park, for example. Uh, tens of thousands of people turning up for this as well. So we have uh, a little bit of video from this. Uh, three people, first of all, Diane Serre and Jose Vega from uh, the, the Schiller Institute. And secondly, uh, well, Anya Parampil herself. She's, of course, from Grey Zone. Uh, so let's just have a brief listen to this. Good afternoon. I want to especially thank Nick and Angela for pulling all of us together. And I am pleased that we have smoked out hundreds of FBI agents and thousands of NAFO trolls just by sticking together to oppose our nation from plunging us into the abyss of thermonuclear war. And you know, people always ask me, like, how do you... How do you just start doing that? How do you just stand up and start going after politicians? Well, the truth is I'm an American citizen, and I know what that means. You know, there's an old saying that goes, know where you stand and then stand there. And where are we standing today? A hundred years ago, this Lincoln Memorial was constructed, and inside there's a sentence from the Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address which says, that we highly resolve that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. But how do you actually do that? My answer is we have to be that free government that we intend to preserve, to improve, or to create. And the reality is, building an anti-war movement is not about building anybody's personal vanity political project. It's not about building even necessarily individual parties. It's putting all of that together over the one umbrella of ending the war. We don't get, we don't have the luxury in the grassroots when we're fighting for something to say that uh, we want to play clubhouse politics and that we want to sit in the same houses, talk to the same people that we've been talking to for, in some cases, decades, other cases, years. And everybody thinks the same, everybody looks the same. That's not fun, that's not growth, and that's definitely not building a movement. So I actually think it's great that people can come together and discuss the areas where they disagree. And, you know, we can debate whether or not teenage girls should have to share locker rooms or compete in athletics against biological males another time. Because the reality is, if the people who run this country right now continue down this path, those other questions aren't even going to matter. So I don't know what you think of that, uh, David, but uh, just, just to say that the, the comments that Diane Sarah made at the beginning there about FBI agents and NAFO trolls, if you want to understand the context of that, have a look at uh, last Friday's program when Brian, uh, when uh, Patrick was talking about uh, NAFO and how that how that's being used to troll uh, Twitter to drive narratives uh, and also the Twitter files uh, as Patrick's been covering over the last few weeks uh, and the exposure of uh, the um, level of FBI uh, activity on Twitter, for example. But David, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I'd have to say Lincoln's not a great example. 800,000 dead Americans, the wartime president. I would stay away from Lincoln. I can discuss maybe an extra time with, uh, 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 with Mark just why. 
Um, and he nicked that quote from Wycliffe, and we might cover that as well. Uh, the idea, though, that, that people have to allow differences to exist and focus on a particular issue and come together on that issue, I think is a point well made, because there's no point in, in subdividing, 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 and looking for people who agree with you on everything before you'll fight for anything. Otherwise, there's simply bickering and inactivity. Yeah, Mark, have you got any thoughts on uh, yesterday's events? Well, I, I'll just echo what David said. Um, uh, Lincoln may not be the best choice. Uh, in fact, he, he jailed dissenters uh, toward the Civil War, as did FDR regarding World War II and Woodrow Wilson regarding World War I. That aside, um, it's a big enough issue where um, you can draw people together and focus on the, on the larger issues at hand and forget about ideological rifts and differences. The fact that I'm hearing they're smoking out FBI trolls is certainly great news because they show up at a lot of different events. They try and infiltrate militias in Michigan and elsewhere. The FBI is notorious for that, so it's great to hear they're being smoked out a bit. That would be my five-cent observation right now. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, just remind everybody that next weekend, uh, the Stop, Stop the War Coalition is uh, holding a similar event in London. Uh, and, uh, you know, the key point that I think we want to make is that it's going to take uh, people from all sides of the political uh, establishment, all sides of the political spectrum, if you want to put it that way, uh, to... Uh, to, to stop this, uh, and uh, so I would encourage everybody that was at Oxford for a start to get along to this one as well. Yeah, but it's it's great to see that uh, people are now getting out and about, and and the more people that come together, I think the more people um, understand and decide they can also stand up. So this is good news. Um, okay, David. Well, to Poland now and uh, the ongoing uh, discussion as to who runs the country between the Poles and the EU. Proof, if ever we needed more proof, that if you join the EU, you're surrendering your sovereignty to unaccountable bureaucrats. So we have here the European Commission taking Poland to the European Court of Justice because the Poland Constitutional Court uh, ruled uh, that uh, Polish law had primacy over EU law. Uh, it reports here... Uh, Polish officials uh, reacted with considerable irritation uh, when the European Commission uh, decided to take Poland to the European Court of Justice. Um, uh, and uh, we have the uh, constitutional sportsman, um, uh, Prasidic, um, saying that, uh, that uh, the Polish constitution, rather than international treaties, is a source of Polish law, a very important point. And uh, the Commission is going to argue that the principle of rule of law is enshrined in the Lisbon Treaty and is a fundamental value uh, of the EU, which no member state may violate. And therefore, the Poles do not have any uh, right to set their own law. Uh, that one will run and run. Um, on the general subject of uh, infringements of liberty, we have here a strange report from the Mail Online regarding uh, the ongoing um, counter-terrorism prevent scheme, um, focusing ever more on the so-called far right. It transpires, however, that uh, they had a, an audit and singled out certain things which were promoting the far right, including the comedy's Yes Minister in the thick of it, the 1955 war epic The Dambusters, 
and the complete works of uh, William Shakespeare. And um, this is a taxpayer-funded document. Um, also referenced The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, um, and uh, George Orwell's 1984, as well as Bridge Over the River Choir, The Great Escape, and Zulu. Um, now, what's, what have we got in common with all of these all of these pieces of work? A, they're very well known, they're high quality. Um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy even got a mention. Why are they going after these? Far right, really? Um, that doesn't that doesn't have any credibility. What it is, though, is it gives people the ability to think in a way which is not compliant with the state's wishes. It gives some basis for resistance, some basis for dissent. So what we're actually seeing is the label far right is being applied to all dissent of all sorts. And um, the label labor, the label terrorist is not far away from that because prevent is a counter-terrorist scheme. So I found that actually quite troubling, even though ridiculous. Uh, this takes us on to an excellent article by Matt uh, Tybee uh, in his Racket News, The West's Betrayal of Freedom. And he writes, Westerners once endlessly propagandised freedom as the ultimate democratic virtue. Now in fear of revolt, the leaders of these countries are mounting an opposite campaign. He then refers to the Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacote um, and, and a piece called Freedom Has Been a Weaponised Word. The Emergencies Act finally tells us what it means. And he writes, this article rails against the warped idea of freedom, populism and misinformation being spread all over social media. It reads like a, a tisk tisting editorials um, in the West that you've read since Trump, which used every crisis to hype the idea that freedom equals danger. It wasn't long ago that a person couldn't go outside without having the word freedom jammed in his, his or her ear. It was Mel Gibson yelling it out over the extensions in Braveheart or uh, Republican Congressman Bob Ney encouraging and Patton-esque invasion of the house cafeteria so you could rename your potato-based side dish freedom fries. So a new PR campaign was born, selling a generation of upper-class kids on the idea of freedom as a stalking horse for race hatred, ignorance, uh, and every other bad thing that a person can imagine. And piles, he says. Um, so I think this is a very insightful piece. Right? It is a PR campaign. It is to change how people think. It's to reframe, as Brian's often mentioned. And um, it, is, uh, it is essentially completely reversing everything that Western society, Western culture has held dear for centuries. And it's been done without a, a word of complaint by senior politicians or, or the mainstream in media, um, or the mainstream in the churches, the mainstream anywhere, it would seem. Um, now, we now come to a little one that I'm looking for your comment on, gentlemen. Liz Trust was speaking in Japan, right? And um, she had a few things to say that were quite surprising. We have a tape. Let's be clear. The free world is in danger. We're living in very turbulent economic times, right through from the shock of the financial crisis through to the COVID crisis that we're still recovering from. We have less of the world's population living under democracy than we did 30 years ago. Meanwhile, we have authoritarian regimes that are building up their armaments 
as well as they're building up their arguments. And they're not just trying to convince their own populations. They're also trying to win over global opinion. And they're trying to create a new global world order. I found that a strange one. So she's, she's saying that they're trying to create a new world order. Now, is this the same new world order that George uh, Herbert Walker Bush used to talk about, which was uh, rule of law, not, rule of, not, not law of the jungle, um, was how he liked to characterise it. But it was essentially um, um, multinational institutions ruling the world. So is she talking about that, or is she talking about a different new world order? in which it's nation states being independent, in which case she seems to be suggesting she doesn't like the nature of the people running the nation states. And amen to that. Um, but she's also complaining that they're using arguments and they're persuading people. And is this an admission that the West is no longer able to do this because the West's values, well, it has abandoned them? I found it very strange. What do you think, gentlemen? Well, my first question is, what did she mean by the free world? Because I'm making the sweeping assumption, and it could be completely wrong, but I'm making the sweeping assumption that the words that are coming out of her mouth don't necessarily mean this, what I think they mean. So uh, if she says the free world is in danger, is she talking about her free world, her rules-based international, uh, rules international order, which, of course, uh, they describe as being the free world uh, but there's nothing free about it. Well, that, that's absolutely true. I, I wonder whether this one's quite simple, that that uh, the governments in the West are now being found out on all sorts of issues, whether it's the fact that uh, they've destroyed economies or they can print money to pour arms into Ukraine, um, what, whatever it is. But uh, people are looking at those governments in UK and the US and in the EU and they know that they're dealing with a dictatorship. It describes itself as a rules-based international order. Um, that has got tarnished. So what do we try and do? Project that onto the Russians and the Chinese. So I, th I think this is a desperate attempt to try and regain the territory with vocabulary. Um, but she's not going to be able to do it because too many people now understand what the truth is. That's my take on it. It's, it's a war of words. Well, well, very interesting comments both. Um, a war of words it certainly is. Um, it, it, it certainly raises more questions than it, than it provides answers. Maybe we'll try and get some, some answers from the dear lady. Okay. <laughs> let's move on to... Well, yeah, well, let's, let's move on to this because it flows on very well from that little segment. So what's coming up? Well, you may feel that if you're going to vote Labour, life's going to get better. Thank you very much to the viewer who uh, pointed out um, David Lammy's uh, Shadow Foreign Secretary's Twitter page and said, Brian, you just need to pay attention. So I visited the very glossy page. And of course, the first thing you can see is David Lammy's dedication to the United Kingdom. Um, I think there is a little flag in the uh, Ukrainian crowd there, but uh, it's difficult to see. Um, but uh, let's get on to what he thought was important. And of course, he was um, he was very big on the fact he'd been glad handing a lot of people at the Munich Security Conference, which you'll be talking about in a minute, Mike. Um, I was interested to see that uh, uh, he said it had included EU High Representative Burrell, 
because he's been saying some extremely interesting things. Uh, but there we are. Um, we've got David Lammy out the great and the good, and uh, Ukraine is clearly his priority. Um, so this is busy day at the Munich Security Conference, including speaking on democratic resilience. That's a great expression. And down the bottom right with a big arrow, of course, he's uh, delighted that he ran into Kiev's mayor, um, um, Vitaly. So he was very excited about the whole thing. Now, we've got two little video clips here um, where he had previously been talking to Chatham House. Let's have a listen to the or a look at the first video clip. The lack of purpose in Britain's foreign policy stems from both bad choices and institutional dysfunction. We have left the European Union, but not yet found a new, settled and confident place in Europe. Our country's reputation for the rule of law has been badly damaged. Our leadership in development has been squandered. The foundations of our defences have been weakened, our soft power has been corroded, and our climate leadership forsaken. It is, I'm afraid, a sad, dismal record. I take no pleasure in saying that. We all have a stake in the success of our country, and a future Labour government will inherit the consequences of these choices. It will fall to us to rebuild the foundations of our influence in the world again. And my vision is of a Britain reconnected, secure at home and strong abroad, a confident country outside of the European Union, but a leader in Europe once again, a reliable partner, a dependable ally, a good neighbour. NATO's leading European power, a development superpower once more, at the vanguard of climate action, driving forward the industries of the future of Britain, a diplomatic entrepreneur and a country that keeps its word. In government, we will announce a new mission statement for the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office designed around five clear goals. One, a Britain reconnected to defend the UK's security with strong armed forces and resilience against the 21st century threats. Two, a Britain reconnected to champion the UK's prosperity and lead the industries of the future. Three, a Britain reconnected for climate action, turning our response into an engine of growth. Four, a Britain reconnected for international development, helping to promote the UK's security, health, and jobs in the process, and five, a Britain reconnected for diplomacy to re-establish the United Kingdom as a trusted, reliable, and influential partner while protecting Britons abroad. Well, David, I'm, I'm gonna throw it back to you for some initial comment on that, but uh, a lot of words there. Um, and uh, I'm intrigued to see that uh, climate action is number three of his priorities. So the Foreign Office is going to be working to save the world through climate action apart from anything else. But what did you make of it? I thought he sounded like a Tory. That was David Lammy. He's not been abducted, has he? <laughs> I mean, that, that was him. It's not, it's not a guy in a suit, right? Um, you know, he's, he was indistinguishable from the mainstream of the Conservative Party there. 
is trying to sound governmental. This is this is the this is what needs to be done to win power. I think I think that's what's going on. And yes, we got. I mean, the fact that climate action is number three, I think, is an improvement because it used to be number one, right? And it will eventually drop off the off the list because it's nonsense. Uh, and we don't face an existential crisis, and they can only go on for so many decades pretending that we do. Um, and the rest of it, yes, lots of words. What did it actually signify? We'll do exactly the same as was has been done before. We'll change nothing, but we'll just do it better. We'll be better managers. This is the Conservative Party, is it not? Uh, well, great, great comment. Uh, I have got a second part to the clip, so just stay with it as he as he goes on. Let's hear how he finishes his little segment. I want to show you what Labour's new approach looks like in a single policy, the fight against kleptocracy. I know this is an issue where Chatham House has led the charge, but the past year has laid bare a decade of chronic inaction against dirty money from Russia and other authoritarian states that has infiltrated the city. Money laundering has seen London homes become the bitcoins of kleptocrats, pricing out our frontline workers from their own homes. Corruption, bribery, and even financing of terrorist organizations here in the UK. This is not just a job for the police. This is foreign policy. I felt this when I visited Ukraine almost exactly one year ago, just before Putin's tanks rolled in. And as I sat with anti-corruption campaigners angry, that Putin's oligarchs could launder their dirty money in Mayfair. They want Britain to act. I see this in Brussels, where the EU and UK officials have already been working together to coordinate sanctions policy, but are hamstrung by the Tories' bad deal in how we can cooperate further. They want a Britain to work with. I hear this in Washington, where today my friends, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Senator Jean Shaheen, are calling for the United States, Britain and the European Union to join forces to create a new transatlantic anti-corruption council to coordinate the fight. Labour will answer this call, not whistle the other way. We will reconnect Britain, but the work will start at home. We passionately believe in this great country. We feel the frustration of its disconnection everywhere. We can restore Britain's influence. We have so much to build on, world-leading universities, scientists at the cutting edge of future technologies, vibrant cultural industries that shape the global conversation, and home to some of the most dynamic service sectors in the world. But we cannot build on these strengths by going it alone. With Labour, Britain will be internationalist, confident, and facing the future, a Britain reconnected for security and prosperity at home. Thank you. Well, there we are. What's coming is an internationalist future. And I think that's really what he was giving the internationalists what they wanted to hear. Um, but I was taken with the fact that he's boasting he visited one of the most corrupt countries in Europe, and that has to be Ukraine. And then he attempts to blame all that corruption on Putin. Uh, wasn't it the same Conservative Party, at least, that was taking money from Russian oligarchs straight into the Conservative Party itself. So no different between difference at all between these people. But uh, this final tweet really says what Lammy's about. 
uh, because here he is boasting that at the Munich Security Council, he was able to uh, meet up with our old friend Bill Gates. So if you think you're going to get, uh, you're going to vote Labour and you're going to get old style Labour to look after the working man, that's all gone. You're going to get Lammy in a very smart suit and he's going to be carrying out his internationalist policy uh, with the likes of Bill Gates. Uh, and that fits very well for with uh, Keir Starmer, of course, who would prefer Davos to Parliament, for exactly example. Right, yeah. uh, okay, well, let's move on to the Munich Security Conference then. And here we are, uh, because Rishi went to Munich. Uh, let's have a look at him speaking. Uh, here he is. Uh, and well, as you can see, what's that? About a third of the seats are empty. So not too many people really interested in listening to Rishi. Uh, now, we have a, a little bit of video here. I can hear the groans in the chat box already, but don't worry, it doesn't last long. Uh, and actually, there's quite a bit of background noise, so I'm not sure that too many there were listening to him either. Let's have a listen to this. The United Kingdom will always be on the side of freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. And the security of our European continent will always be our overriding priority. Russia has committed violation after violation against countries outside the collective security of NATO. And the international community's response has not been strong enough. As Jens Stoltenberg has said, Ukraine will become a member of NATO. But until that happens, we need to do more to bolster Ukraine's long-term security. Well, if anybody's still awake after that, uh, he was outdone only just by uh, Ben Wallace, uh, who was talking about nuclear weapons. Let's have a listen. Let me start with you, um, Ben. Russia has been using nuclear signaling since the very f first days of this war. How do we react now? What does this nuclear sable rattling Russia has been using over the last year, what does it mean for NATO? Do we have to adapt our posture? Do we have to fundamentally change our approach? Or what are the steps we should take now? Thank you, thank you, Claudia. Now, I, I think, first of all, it's a wake up call. I mean, that, uh, you know, uh, for many decades, we've all sort of uh, just forgotten to engage in the new debate. Those? Ben, you want to try that? Good. Is that better? Much better. Good. Uh, I think, first of all, it's a wake-up call. Um, it's a wake-up call that, uh, you know, there really is an adversary out there who is prepared to evoke nuclear weapons. It's a reminder of why we have, to some extent, a nuclear deterrent in our nations uh, in NATO. It's also a reminder that NATO is a nuclear alliance. It, it, a lot of countries forget that. Um, a lot of countries, uh, you know, European countries have liked being part of NATO but never really wanted to enter the nuclear debate. Um, the real reality is, uh, I think we saw it in Germany when Germany opted to buy the F-35s. One of the reasons for that was part of NATO involves European planes carrying nuclear weapons in the time of a war. And I think it was convenient for 20 years to pretend that that rather uh, sort of uh, unattractive part was not really debated and talked about. So I think, first and foremost, it is a reminder uh, that NATO is a nuclear alliance. 
So there we go. Not even the Munich Security Conference wanted to hear from Ben Wallace, but when they eventually did get, uh, when they eventually did get a mic into his hands, we understand why they didn't want to hear from. Because, but David, uh, what are your thoughts on what Rishi and Ben had to say? Well, R Rishi was just going through the normal talking points. He wasn't really seeing anything new. Ben, ben said, criti criticizing Russia, that they evoked the issue of nu nuclear weapons. He brought it to mind. And his next sentence says, NATO is a nuclear alliance, evoking and bringing to mind the issue of nuclear weapons. So within like two seconds, he did what he just condemned Putin from doing. I thought that was quite spectacular. Uh, apart from that, more of the same. No realism, no wisdom. And no talk of peace. No talk of peace at all. And he doesn't know what to talk about because, of course, he's holding two contradictory ideas in his head. He wants to go to war with Russia, but he knows he can't because we don't have the weapons to go to war with Russia. And he should know that in his position, in his formal position. So we'll, we'll hear a little bit more in a minute. Uh, but in the meantime, as Brian mentioned, uh, Joseph Burrell, the effectively EU foreign secretary, uh, was also speaking. And he was talking about uh, Ukraine's position with respect to the European Union. Ukraine belongs to Europe. It could have been in a different way. But now it's done. Ukraine is a member of the European Union, European family, European culture, civilization, way of living. And this has to be institutionalized. They have to do their homework. We have to accompany them and we have to prepare to receive Ukraine and others, like it or not. Like it or not, David? Like it or not sounds like a threat. Um, and Ukraine and others, we're not stopping with the Ukraine. Presumably that means Azerbaijan, Georgia, Moldova. Well, the fact the whole eastern neighbourhood of the EU, I would guess. That's why they call it the eastern neighbourhood. It is indeed. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have to um, do what I often do these days, which is take a little look at uh, BBC's uh, main web page, because this morning I found this absolutely unbelievable because there was effectively no news on it. So we've got BAFTAs. We've got the tragic story of Nicola Bully. I think there's a lot more to be said about this story because the disappearance, and I believe we're shortly going to hear the death of this uh, lady, has been a big filler for the BBC and many other uh, media outlets in UK. Um, but we've got stolen Cambodian jewel trove. We've got price of a cuppa, sex abuse on tea farms, how Monday strikes, dozens killed in Brazil coast storms. Um, but if you look at it, there's really nothing of any substance there. The BBC has simply run out of stuff to say. And of course, the big thing that they don't want to go near is what's happening in Ukraine. So I am just going to give a little summary here of the key bit. The key city that uh, people should pay attention to is what's happening around Bakhmut. Of course, UK, the US, the UK Ministry of Defence says that this is a town of uh, no strategic importance when the opposite applies. Uh, but what has been happening over recent weeks is that the Russians have been working to encircle uh, this uh, highly fortified town. And I've used Defence Politics Asia. You can find him on uh, YouTube. Excellent reports on what's happening 
on the battleground. And I've used this image to show we're up to the north of Bakhmut. Bakhmut, you can see uh, in yellow, is uh, lies a little bit to the south of the area that we're showing. Um, but this is the area of recent uh, Russian advances against more fortified towns. And this has caused extremely high casualties for Ukraine. And Ukraine is throwing thousands of more troops, many of them untrained, into this area to fight the Russians. How many are we talking about engaged? Uh, a minimum of 20,000, but it may well be up to 35, 40,000. So this is a massive battle taking place and the Russians are moving very slowly because their method of operation is to simply shell the Ukrainians into submission. If I put this one on, up on screen, uh, the uh, pink is uh, territory firmly held by Russia. The yellow is where they've been moving forward and you can see the scale of the encirclement around Bakhmut. So this isn't one city area that's being taken by Russia. They are now encircling a massive number of Ukrainian troops. And many of these retreats, troops are having to retreat from fortified positions. So they're having to dig new trenches whereupon the Russians are simply shelling them. So the, the Ukrainian casualties at the moment are huge. We're being told by the BBC that the Russians have suffered higher casualties over the last few days and over the last week in particular. That is certainly true. But the unfortunate fact is that the Ukrainians are dying in their thousands. And I will attempt to show you why in a minute. I'd like to say that um, UK Column appreciates the work of Brian Belletic from the New Atlas, who's been giving very, very good commentary, and also Alex Mercurius from the Duran. Uh, but the images that I've got are thanks to a variety of social media sources, and we recognize that the work that they're doing. So let's have a look at this one, which is sort of taking us on a little bit. And uh, the dotted red lines are showing the ultimate area that the Russians are going for to do a full encirclement of this area. And there is only one thing that is going to happen, and it is going to be tens of thousands of Ukrainian casualties. This is some uh, video footage which I've put together, thanks to social media. And this is the reality of the battlefield. At the moment, the Ukrainians are out of the built-up areas. They're into trench lines, mainly at the edge of fields in the hedgerows, and the Russians simply shell them. If they seek sanctuary in fortified positions amongst buildings and, of course, outside Bakhmud, um, there are many areas that are built up. The Russians are standing off, shelling the Ukrainians. More footage here of the distance hedgerows distant hedgerow being shelled, and the Ukrainians are dying in their tens, hundreds and thousands. These are the bigger thermobaric weapons that the Russians are using. And of course, Ukraine does not have access to the scale of weapons that the Russians do. Uh, NATO is unable to help because we've run out of ammunition and uh, weapon systems, as now finally even Ben Wallace is having to admit but this is the reality of the tragic death of many Ukrainians on the ground. And uh, what is Ukrainian doing? It's trying to recruit even more uh, troops to throw them forward where they will die. And this is yet another video of the tragic capture of a young man 
on the streets and he's being carted off by the recruitment units of the Ukrainian military. Press ganged? Press ganged. I don't know why he appears to be semi-unconscious or whether he's just gone limp to play the game. Uh, but clearly he's a very young man and this is happening right the way across Ukraine. They will be given minimal training and thrown through into the uh, Bakhmut encirclement where they will die. And this is the stage it's now got to that Ukrainians are recruiting young women. This is one clip of girls on a bus. Uh, they're armed. Where are they going? Are they being sent to the front? Many people believe this is what is about to happen. The women are getting closer and closer to frontline duties because the Ukrainians are simply running out of human beings. And uh, we'll just pop this up on the screen. I know you've covered this a lot, Mike. Um, but um, of course, it's not just the West that now understands the pitiful truth about uh, uh, Western military capability. Uh, but this is the Hindustan Times um, quoting Ben Wallace in his, his uh, piece to the Spiegel. NATO has to face the painful truth that our army's been hollowed out for the last 30 years. Uh, there are numbers of how many tanks each country have, but then there is the reality that tells us far too few of them are operational. Well, the reality is there's far too few tanks, and he knows it. They've been lying to the Ukrainians, and this is the reality. We now have no uh, ammunition to give the Ukrainians in order to feed the increasingly few guns they've got left. So the prognosis for the Ukrainians is that Bakhmut will fall. The Russians are in no hurry because the longer it takes, the more Ukrainians are going to die. And ultimately, it's the fault of, of uh, certainly the US, uh, the UK and the EU that Ukraine is being encouraged to fight on instead of coming to some negotiated peace settlement. So tragedy in uh, Ukraine, all created by the West. And if you want to understand how that was done, have a look at Brian Belletic's uh, most recent um, uh, video uh, on the new atlas where he explains how it was done, how Ukraine was dragged into this war in very great detail. It's a really excellent piece of journalism. Uh, now on Friday, uh, we were pointing out that the Ministry of Defence was getting very defensive over their defence intelligence, excuse me, the, how many defences there are in that, defence intelligence reports, uh, that they fe felt the need to issue a news report of their own, uh, explaining how the words uh, remote chance, highly unlikely, unlikely, likely or probable and almost certain uh, what those actually mean. Uh, so let's just have a look at today's uh, defence uh, intelligence update. Uh, Russia continues, they say, to pursue several offensive axes in eastern Ukraine, Volodar, Crimea and Bakhmut. Uh, casualties rep reportedly remain high, particularly in the Bakhmut and Volodar, specifically the elite 155th and 40th Naval Infantry Brigades have sustained very high losses in Volodar and are like, uh, likely combat ineffective. Now, of course, they're only talking about Russian casualties here. They're not talking about uh, Ukrainian casualties at all. They're not uh, admitting how many Ukra Ukrainians have been killed and injured. Uh, and of course, if you're involved in a military uh, action of some kind, you're going to have casualties on both sides. But let's only focus on one side, uh, says Defence Intelligence. The next thing they say is Russian forces are likely under increasing pre political pressure as the anniversary of the invasion draws near. It's likely that Russia will claim that Bakhmut has been captured to align with the anniversary regardless of the reality on the ground. 
And finally, they say if Russia's spring offensive fails to achieve anything, then tensions within the Russian leadership will likely increase. So how did the BBC cover this? Uh, well, here they had their live page. Biden makes surprise visit to Kiev ahead of Ukraine war anniversary. Biden has announced a whole tranche of new weapons, which will never arrive. Uh, but this is what they did. They basically copied and pasted uh, from the Ministry of Defense tweet without any analysis or any uh, counter uh, or any uh, consideration whether it's accurate or not and just published it and that was it. Yeah, so so we, we now have one um, consolidated propaganda machine for the whole of the UK. David, I know you want to come in. I'm just going to add that even the BBC over the last few days had to do some um, in-depth analysis of Russian casualties and it must have surprised the BBC when they came back to a, a figure of around 14,000 uh, killed in action for the Russians. On top of that, people from uh, DPR forces uh, would, would boost that number. But ultimately, when you put the two figures together, what the BBC is reporting comes remarkably close to the sorts of figures that the Russian Ministry of Defence is reporting itself. So if we take Russian casualties up at 30,000, uh, what we've got to look at is the fact that on the other side, Ukrainian casualties are up around the 200,000. And that gap is going to increase as the, Russian, uh, as the Ukrainians have forced out of there. Uh, built up area defensive position. So Russians will certainly not declare Bakhmut has been taken before it has fallen because they have no need to, but they're very happy if the Ukrainians continue to pump in forces for the next three or four months because they are dying. David. Oh, just very briefly, that uh, what, the, what the brave stenographers from the BBC didn't tell us in that little piece on uh, the, the MOD definition of probability, is that none of that's true. The, 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 the MOD are trying to deceive people into thinking that there's some science behind this by using numbers and giving the appearance of precision where none exists. This is just their feel assessment belief, that's all. 75% probability. No, that's a lie. That would imply statistics and evidence and repeatability, and they don't have any of those things. Indeed. Okay, now, uh, Vanessa Bealey was not with us on Friday uh, because she was in Aleppo. Uh, she intends to report on next Friday's programme, this coming Friday's programme, about uh, the impact of the earthquake uh, on there and on the White Helmets, and that is going to be an extremely important report, so please do join us on Friday for that. But she arrived back to home in Damascus uh, on Saturday to uh, more Israeli action in Syria. So Russia, this is the Times of Israel headline here. Russia condemns Israeli strike on Syria as flagrant violation of international law. Uh, five civilians killed. No condemnation of the civilian deaths uh, because the, uh, uh, Israel in this case targeted a... It is an area that contains military and uh, uh, defense staff, but also a large civilian population as well. So they didn't particularly worry too much about who was going to be on the receiving end. Uh, it was it's a, a residential area of Damascus was what was targeted here. Uh, and uh, well, as I say, no condemnation, but more from Vanessa on this uh, and on her visit to Aleppo on Friday. Yeah. Where does that take us? That takes us to the subject of immigration, David. Yes, we've got here the uh, Guardian report, which is very interesting. 
Headline is Asylum Seekers Living in Fear. Right? So it's the asylum seekers who are the, the, get the sympathetic view. Asylum seekers living in fear as more UK anti-migrant protests are planned. Right? Even that is a confused headline. It's like, are they anti-migrant protests? Are they anti-asylum seeker protests? Are they asylum seekers or the migrants? No. As tensions mount at Dunstable meeting as hate not hope, sorry, hope not hate, maybe I was right the first time, flags far, five far-right affiliated demonstrations planned this weekend. So Dunstable, um, picturesque market town in Bedfordshire. This is not this is not what you associate with the with what's painted as the far right. Mind you, neither is Liverpool, and that's what they were painting as far right last week. Um, the Guardian con continues. The anger uh, was palpable as hundreds of Dunstable residents filed into the historic Priory Church Thursday evening. Uh, there was, this was a meeting to air concerns about the recent arrival of asylum seekers to a popular hotel across the road. Um, but the subjects of the assembly were too terrified. The subjects of the assembly, the asylum seekers, were too terrified to attend and defend themselves. No evidence for that from the Guardian. It's just a statement. Um, they'd seen a leaflet widely distributed by far-right patriotic alternative activists bearing the image of asylum seekers in a dinghy. There was another showing the hotel uh, where they'd been moved by the Home Office emblazoned with the slogan, you pay migrants stay. Well, who, taxpayer is picking up the bill. It's factually correct. Uh, as tensions mount, hope not hate the organisation that monitors far-right activity, I wouldn't describe it as that, but still, The Guardian does, has flagged five anti-migrant demonstrations happening over the weekend, including one in Rotherham, promoted by Britain First and Patri Patriotic Alternative. Uh, one speaker uh, from the local community said a friend had seen asylum seekers sexually harassing young girls in the town. I'm concerned for my children and my grandchildren, she said. So the, clearly there's, there's anxiety in the town about what's happening. Uh, the Guardian continued, Patriot, patriotic alternative activist Wesley Russell attended and launched a diatribe. So note, note the language. It's not a speech. It's a diatribe against asylum seekers calling them illegal immigrants who should be forced to buy tickets back to their home countries. Quote, what you are saying is offensive, um, said one of the local councils. Um, uh, and then there's, there's more um, comments from uh, someone who runs a charity who, who seeks to assist the asylum seekers. Uh, government spokes person said we have a legal obligation to support asylum seekers who would otherwise be destitute. All accommodation sites are security staff and we continue to review the security at asylum accommodation sites with providers. So more boilerplate from uh, from the government. So the Guardian's presenting a, a, a view of the good people of Dunstable as angry, intemperate, possibly far right. And they specifically highlighted this jump from the patriotic alternative of Wesley Russell. And they, they chose a, a photograph, a still of him with his hand up. Now he's pointing so they couldn't get him doing a Hitler salute, but they tried. So none of this is very subtle character assassination by the Guardian. And I thought it would be interesting just to listen to what he actually said before we just judge him a Nazi and, and, and cast him off into outer darkness. It's a very telling that a lot of the conversation tonight seems to be around the hotel. Um, but if, let's not beat around the bush, okay? Everybody, I think, can agree with me that the biggest concern is uh, everybody's welfare and safety. Now, 
don't take us for fools when you say that these people are refugees. We know they are illegal migrants. If these people were refugees, what are they fleeing from? It's very telling that we're never told what they are fleeing from. What wars are they fleeing from? What countries are they coming from? What are they fleeing? What persecution? We don't know. So we know that they're by definition illegal immigrants, which technically makes them criminals and they should be treated as such. They shouldn't be put up in five-star hotels they should be in cells and they should be told they are not leaving until they pay for their ticket back. So my question to you is, not where are you going to shift them to in a year's time, how are you going to remove them from the country? And don't give me an excuse that, oh, there's the UN uh, refugee document that we signed, or there's the European Court of Human Rights. We voted for Brexit. This is supposed to be a sovereign country. You could easily withdraw from any of those agreements, but you don't. Your party has failed time and time again. In 2010, David Cameron said he was going to get immigration down. How did that work out? We've got higher levels than Tony Blair, and it was his intention to flood this okay, country you, with sir. migrants on purpose. Thank These you, people, not all of them, but some of them are going to go on to commit okay, egregious sir. crimes, sir. rape, theft, sir, murder, and sir, there was a reason why the other day sir, there please, was that ruckus please. in Kirksby, and we all know why it was, because okay. a migrant was harassing a young Can girl. That is going to happen out. in Dunstable, it's going to happen in every please, single please, part of the country. Please, you need you to, to stop, stop this sir. now, or you're going to have a serious problem on your hands. Sir, Thank please. you. We move straight to the next question, please, sir. So we'll move straight to the next. We'll answer that. We'll move straight to the next question. So what he was asking was, where are the other people fleeing from? That seems a reasonable information that the local community should be given. He was suggesting they're not asylum seekers but migrants. Well, that surely requires to be addressed. That he wasn't putting it as a question, but presumably it is. And if they're illegal migrants, how are you going to remove them from the country? These are not unreasonable questions to be asked, but the Guardian is telling us that these are unreasonable things to be asking. The Guardian is saying that to be asking these questions makes you, they're not saying Nazi, but they're strongly suggesting that's what it is. This is very strange. This is a, an example of the Guardian not tolerating um, a proper debate about what's happening in our country. That level of intolerance carries with it a great threat. And I'd like to talk more about this in extra time, but just for the moment, gentlemen, what's your reaction to that? Uh, well, I, I've got a number of questions on this because I'd like to know how that meeting was organised. It was clearly in a, in a church. Um, but I was just picking up on the style of it, the um, ro roving mics and everything. And I would guess that this meeting itself was highly controlled Delphi technique. Some people may understand where I'm going with that, that this was a controlled meeting in order to deal with real anger amongst it, the local community. It looked and felt, based on that video, very much like the hustings that uh, we, you and I attended when you were standing for Parliament, Brian, uh, and that was a very controlled event. But uh, the, the, 
and the other point is, has disappeared. But the... Well, OK, but the other thing I, I was going to say was that many years ago when I was uh, able to um, talk to the Muslim community in Birmingham about what was happening in the country, and one of the subjects that we discussed was immigration. And it was very interesting that, that uh, families who were now into their third generation of living in UK understood perfectly well that you couldn't have a situation where simply more and more and more people come into the country because what happens, infrastructure starts to break down and that's the situation we're in. We're in. So we can also say that established immigrants within UK also recognise that there is something very wrong at the moment uh, as people simply come here with apparently no restrictions. Uh, uh, David, sorry, the final point I was going to make was that, uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, the organisers were busy trying to shut him down, the audience was clapping. Yes. Yeah, the, he was obviously resonating with the local people. I mean, he's not local himself, I, I take. I take it. He's, he's perhaps come from further abroad and he's, a, and he's a, a political activist. But he's not saying things that people aren't thinking. Yes. Yeah. So, um, the, sorry. That takes the, us on to Mark and, absolutely. and American immigration issues. Yeah. yeah, very interesting there what's happening on the other side of the pond. I'll just briefly note that it, it uh, virtually parallels everything going on here. If you believe in border security, if you believe in law and order, you're the problem. The governments attack the people that are concerned about those things, and they're not even concerned about the criminal element that blends in with the so-called migrants. Uh, it's just a, a, an exact image of what's going on here. Now, this carries it even further. This is a totally exclusive story here for UKC. Nobody's carrying this story anywhere yet anyway. Now, Sheriff Jero Arpaio is a well-known former Maricopa County, Arizona sheriff. We'll talk about his background more in a minute, but he's been called America's sheriff in some venues. And this is from his own, uh, his own desk. And the Mexican government accused Sheriff Joe Arpaio of murder and gun smuggling. And Andy Biggs, a member of Congress from Arizona, interceded on Arpaio's behalf. Uh, on October 5th, 2022, Secretary of Foreign Affairs to Mexico, Marcelo Abrard, addressed the Senate of Mexico, accusing Joe Arpaio of murder and gun smuggling. On October 19th, Arpaio, through his attorney, requested an apology from Abrard for his malicious and false allegations, quote unquote. Arpaio, and I talked to Joe myself, uh, was willing to travel to Mexico City to meet with Secretary Ebrard to discuss his comments and receive an apology. Arpaio asked several officials, including a U.S. senator from Arizona, to refute the slanderous remarks from Secretary Ebrard. These officials did not have the decency to return his calls, and that includes uh, Kirsten Cinema, the Arizona senator uh, who went from Democrat to independent and attended the last Bilderberg meeting. However, Andy Biggs, member of Congress, interceded on Sheriff Arpaio's behalf by submitting a letter to President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. And uh, we can move on from there. Uh, this is a little bit about Joe real quick. Longtime Maricopa County, Arizona Sheriff Joe Michael Arpaio, who became synonymous with strict enforcement of immigration laws and border security, much to the chagrin of the liberal internationalist Obama administration that carried out a desperate, ill-founded uh, legal uh, maneuvers against him to upset his latter career. 
Arpaio has 55 years of law enforcement experience, including functioning as a high-level federal uh, official and sheriff, fighting the drug and illegal immigration problem at the U.S.-Mexico border areas, while serving as regional director for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration and diplomatic attache living in Mexico, living in Mexico, excuse me, Arpaio had numerous meetings with the Mexican Attorney General and presidents, receiving several awards and commendations from both the U.S. and Mexican governments, including mention in the U.S. Senate congressional record for his success working with Mexican judges and law enforcement uh, authorities. So going back to the 1970s, Arpaio has worked with the Mexican government to actually uh, intercede and stop drug trafficking and uh, pu push back against the cartels. And Mr. Arpaio still has, he says, he told me, he still has lingering death threats against him from cartel elements. But anyway, there's a picture of Joe Arpaio uh, on the next slide. Uh, this is uh, this is Joe in about the mid-1990s, and that's a copy, an image of the letter uh, from Congressman Andy Biggs to Jake Sullivan, and a National Security Advisor, again, to, to Mr. Uh, Biden. And in this letter, uh, Sullivan points out that on October 13, 2022, Sullivan participated in a meeting at the White House attended by Mr. Marcelo Abrard, his name's a little difficult, Abrar, there it is, Secretary of Foreign Affairs for Mexico to discuss, among other topics, transnational criminal organizations responsible for human smuggling and trafficking drugs and firearms. Your meeting, Mr. Sullivan, took place after Secretary Abrar addressed the Senate of the Republic of Mexico back on October 5th, explicitly stating that Joe Arpaio uh, had contributed to crimes during his time as sheriff, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some pushback going on. Uh, we can go to the next slide from there. Now, this is a letter from Joe Arpaio's attorneys to Marcelo Abrard himself. His full name is Marcelo Abrard Casabom. And this letter was sent directly to, to that official from, uh, again, from uh, Arpaio's attorneys. Now, the next slide, there's a highlighted part of text. Uh, your comments about Mr. Arpaio are slanderous under American law. Mr. Arpaio has never promoted murder, much less the murder of migrants. In fact, Mr. Arpaio lived in Mexico for many years where he served as a representative of the United States government for the DEA. Sheriff Arpaio was even acknowledged in the U.S. Senate congressional record, as I mentioned, as he, as he was commended after a uh, after he commended the hard work, excuse me, of Mexican judges and law enforcement in fighting drug crime, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, Mr. Opio, uh, his work uh, included uh, working against the Juarez, Sonola, and Michoacan cartels. This uh, letter from the attorney to uh, the Mexican official also states, and. From there, I've got sort of a summary of Mr. Opio's uh, past and current accomplishments and his outlook on the border. And it's very conducive towards solutions toward the south border uh, immigration and um, uh, uh, invasion problem going on right now. This mentions here, Sheriff Opio has a comprehensive outlook on enforcing immigration laws and instituting border security 
based on his actual experiences, many of which he's told me personally about. Uh, the measures he's carried out during 24 years as sheriff included having units of his sheriff's department federalized under Immigrations and Customs Enforcement to contribute in enforcing federal border immigration laws. The next one, going at it the other way, the sheriff's department under Arpaio deputizing federal agents to work with the sheriff's department in sheriff's posse type arrangements, creating posses. The next one, arresting employers who hired illegal aliens as well as arresting the illegal workers themselves while also arresting smugglers as well as those being smuggled. And that's rarely the case these days. Many people patrolling the border have said that the people doing the smuggling who are driving the vehicles will be arrested, but the those that are being smuggled are detained for a while, but then they're put into the stream that is being bust and flown into the United States, as we've talked about, talked about before, and they're given court dates, many of which many of which they never show up at. And then kind of summarizing here, as a federal agent in his, in his early days, working with the Mexican government, mix, mix, uh, Sheriff Arpaio, uh, back then a DEA agent, he targeted northbound drug trafficking, et cetera, before it ever reached the border. And Arpaio also supports to this day the concept of sheriffs deputizing armed citizens to help monitor and patrol hotspots along the border, which was another measure that he carried out when he was Maricopa sheriff. So Mr. Arpaio has been a longtime fighter to secure the border and enforce immigration laws. He's carried out very detailed and innovative ways to do that, as I just outlined here. And so on top of what's going on on your side of the pond, not only are citizens that complain, uh, being told they're the problem. Now we have one of the premier law enforcement officials in, in modern U.S. history um, being taken to task on the uh, in, in, on the uh, floor of the Senate in Mexico, but, but he's fighting back and showing what his record is and showing that he still has sound recommendations for what can actually be done about the border crisis here in the States. So that that pretty much sums it up in terms of Mr. Opio, but that's a it's a very uh, interesting exclusive uh, item that's going on right now as we speak. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for that. Just a final comment for me. Um, over the weekend, I was listening to uh, one of Colonel McGregor's uh, videos. He, he's a former uh, American military, giving very good and high level co commentary on what's been happening in Ukraine. And in that video, he said, well, we've got a U.S. government that's talking about the need to defend America, but the back door is open and we have no idea who's coming into the country. And I was really interested that this very measured uh, former, mili former senior military man in the States was also focused on the fact how could uh, Americans protect America if they simply had no idea who was coming into the country. And he was... Uh, he was very pointed in men mentioning um, that, of course, a huge number of Chinese coming in. And if the threat was really China, shouldn't these people be vetted? So he was very measured. Uh, but he was also saying, I can't get my head around how we have a government talking about defending the nation while the back door is open to allow whoever into the country. It's happening in the US. It's happening in UK. This has got to be globalist policy. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership would be very welcome, very much appreciated. You could pick something up at the UK Column shop. 
uh, but pl please do share the material you find on the various platforms. Now, David, we're very short of time, but let's uh, just run through the Scottish news if we could. Yes, yeah, so we reported last Wednesday that Nicola Sturgeon had resigned as First Minister and uh, there's now going to be an election. Uh, I'm going to try and bring out the important themes here, not so much the specific Scottish aspects of it. Um, but firstly, Angus Air Miles Robertson, uh, the bookies' favourite and uh, uh, the continuity candidate, if you will, if you will uh, has announced that... Um, Despite Nicola Sturgeon has been a tremendous First Minister, SNP leader, public servant and advocate of Scottish independence, so take from that what you will. He says, however, as a father of two very young children, the time is not right for me and my family to take on such a huge commitment. So Angus Robertson, age 53, won't run because he's too young and too busy. Now, that leaves us with three candidates. We've got Ash Regan who is kind of like a better version of Nicola Sturgeon in that she's prettier, uh, her red hair looks like it's hers, not out of a bottle. Um, uh, but otherwise, uh, oh, and, and she knows what a woman is and doesn't want to put um, male rapists in women's prisons, so that's good. Uh, otherwise, though, very similar. She's saying 50% plus one of combined votes from pro-independence parties in any Westminster or Holyrood election is a clear instruction from the electorate that we commence withdrawal negotiations from the from the UK. Independence, nothing less. Right? That's delusional. Right? She thinks that she can move forward without the support of the Scottish people. Maybe 60% um, vote in a Scottish um, in a, in a, in a Holyrood election and then maybe just over 50% is also 30% of the Scottish population votes votes for it for parties that include within a broad range of manifesto commitments um, independence. And she thinks that somehow gives her the right to remove uh, the rest of us from the United Kingdom. It's delusional, right? That's just a, 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 a recipe for more confusion and chaos. Um, she says, on my first day as leader, I will call for an independent convention, an independence, sorry, an independence convention to be held. This will involve all pro-independence parties, independence organisations, think tanks and civil society to organise a new independence campaign body. So anyone who doesn't agree is excluded. That's called rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So that's what Ash Reagan um, offers. But, you know, better than Nicola Sturgeon. Let's not knock it. Um, then we've got Hamza Youssef, uh, Nicola Sturgeon loyalist who backed her transgender views. He's the continuity candidate, goodness sake. Um, so a 37-year-old, he pledged to continue to fight for Miss Sturgeon's controversial gender reforms um, and would, uh, would allow the far-left Scottish Greens to stay in government. He's picked up quite a lot of key endorsements from within the party. Now, I was looking for good things to say about Hamza. One good thing you can say about Hamza is he does his own stunts. We have video. You might think it's cruel playing that again, but never mind. Uh, but on a, on a less good note, um, Hamza seems to think that the problem with Scotland is it's full of Scots. We have video of that as well. And to my colleagues on the government bench, we know that we are not immune either. Some people were surprised 
they were taken aback even by the mention of my social media that 99% of the meetings I go to, I'm the only non-white person in the room. But why are we so surprised when the most senior positions in Scotland are filled almost exclusively by those who are white? Take my portfolio alone. The Lord President, white. The Lord Justice Clark, white. Every High Court judge, white. The Lord Advocate, white. The Solicitor General, white. The Chief Constable, white. Every Deputy Chief Constable, white. Every Assistant Chief Constable, white. The Head of the Law Society, white. The Head of the Faculty of Advocates, white. Every Prison Governor, white. And not just Justice, the Chief Medical Officer, white. The Chief Nursing Officer, white. The Chief Veterinary Officer, white. The Chief Social Work Advisor, white. Almost every trade union in this country headed by people who are white. In the Scottish Government, every Director General is white. Every chair of every public body is white. That is not good enough. So there you go. Lucky White Heather, white. White pudding suppers, white. It goes on. And it's not even original. He got that from Anna Sawar, the head of Scottish Labour, who's also of Pakistani ethnic origin, in fact, same part of Pakistan their families came from, um, who made an almost identical speech and the Hamza copied it. But the level of anger, and I have reached out to him several times to try and clarify what he meant by that, but he won't reply. Um, the level of anger there is disturbing, shall we say, and the racist connotations uh, equally so. So, too many, too many Scots in Scotland, uh, according to uh, Hamza, and the only other candidate we've got is quite, quite the opposite. Here we have um, the, the lovely Kate Forbes, Finance Secretary at the moment, now, Kate's a devout Christian, um, and she's now, the, the Telegraph thinks she's the front-runner to um, defeat Sturgeon's Wokarati. Um, she's uh, going to have a vicious campaign against her, however, um, because the teaching of the Free Church is at odds with the SNP positions on several issues. Uh, just to give you an idea, she did a, an interview with the BBC. She said... Um, to be straight, I believe in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe he died for me. He saved me and that my calling is to serve and to love him, to serve and love my neighbours with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. So she said that to the BBC and, you know, fair dues. Um, I don't know how that will play in the SNP. We will see. Uh, the Guardian reported with a different spin, Kate Forbes' religious beliefs could stall her bids to succeed Sturgeon. Um, Tim Bale, Professor of Politics, Queen Mary University of London, uh, says that members are by no means cultural conservatives in the main. That's an understatement. For those who support pol uh, policies like the SNP's recent gender recognition reforms, Bale believes it could be difficult for them to swallow somebody with very strong Christian beliefs, particularly if those bleed, interesting choice of words, into trying to change the, pol the policies of the SNP. So you can maybe be allowed to be Christian, but don't let it affect your politics, seems to be the suggestion there. Um, so what we have here is a question. We've seen this in British politics before with the former leader of the Liberal Democrats. Is it actually acceptable anymore for a Christian to be um, a, a, to have a leading role in politics? Is is believing in in Scripture and having a traditional, uh, socially conservative view that goes with it um, now going to be hounded out of political life and be forced to the margins? Or can a person with uh, outspoken Christian beliefs not only act in uh, the centre of politics, uh, but 
um, allow those beliefs to infuse what they do and what they advocate as they go through public life, as opposed to hiding them, denying them and looking rather shamefaced about them, uh, as uh, the, the Liberal Democrat leader did. Um, time will tell, gentlemen. Update on Fernethy. Right, okay, um, we've got here, just very quickly, Mike's been working massively hard on getting the Fernethy conference edit done, so later this week we'll be launching this. Uh, it's very moving, the Fernethy ladies were magnificent all the way through. Um, some of it is absolutely, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's gripping viewing, and, and it's, they're putting forward really very, very important information. Since the conference, um, we've had um, uh, the Fernethy ladies have had a lot of people joining the group. A lot more ladies have been coming forward. Some of the comments they've received, uh, I've got here about people spending most of their nights standing in the corridors are locked in a cupboard. They locked in the cupboard. Another girl was locked in an underground bunker. The, the level of abuse was off the scale. And remember, we're talking about tens of thousands of little Glaswegian girls who went through this institution over a period of 30 years. Um, of consistently um, brutal uh, and sadistic treatment. So um, this is a very important story. It's going to run and run. Um, but the next major step is we'll have the conference uh, proceedings uh, on the website some point later this week. OK, David, thank you very much for that. We're just going to end with this uh, story that literally came to me this morning. I was able to speak to a particular gentleman while he was walking his dog. And I had to take a, well, I had to take a breath to take him what he was, what he was telling me. Let's have a look at the story and how it was reported. This is the Express. Sinister council wardens follow pensioners walking their dogs. Judy Latimer and Paul Southcombe were told they had breached the dog control public spaces protection order. Now remember, uh, we can't play, we can't pray in certain areas of. Uh, uh, of our cities and uh, public spaces, but also we've got other protection orders. So um, what took place? Well, two men appeared, plainclothed officers. Apparently they demanded uh, ID of these uh, two uh, elderly people. They followed Judy and Paul for some two hours. They followed them, which they found deeply intimidating. They had no idea whether these people were genuine or not. Uh, and they said they were intimidating, but something that was particularly unpleasant was that when Paul uh, turned to one of the men and said, look, I've got a heart condition and I'm feeling very stressed. Indeed, he even uh, lifted up his shirt to show the scar for his pacemaker. Uh, the men continued to follow them. They followed them into a cafe where they stood by their table um, while, while they uh, attempted to unwind. Uh, this caused more stress because, of course, other people in the cafe didn't know what was going on. But when Judy went off to the ladies, one of the men followed her and stood outside the door to the ladies. This is horrific. When Paul started to really feel unwell, they went into a doctor's surgery, but the men followed them inside and continued to effectively intimidate them. And those men only left when the police were called. Now, what men are we talking about? Well, let's have a look at a picture that uh, Judy took. Um, this was uh, faces blanked out on Plymouth Live. 
but uh, the photo she holds. These were Plymouth City Council wardens, unidentified men in hoodies who accosted these two people while they were walking their dog and their offence was the dog was not on the lead. They then followed them for two hours, simply incredible. Um, no visible ID in the beginning, no uniform. Um, what sort of men are these? I think a lot of people would find them very intimidating by their size and demeanour. This is the sort of thing that we're talking about. This is a public spaces protection order, uh, not the one in question, but given to you as an example of what's now happening in our cities. And there was quote, there was comment from Plymouth City Council, but of course it was done anonymously. So I've overlaid the the uh, comments on Richard Bingley, who's the present leader of Plymouth City Council. It's his team at the end of the day, after all. Following a number of complaints from residents about dog fouling in Dean Cross Park, two plainclothes enforcement officers visited the park on Tuesday. Plainclothes officers are prim primarily deployed to enforce dog fouling, but if other offences like littering or dog control breaches are witnessed, they're authorised to issue fixed penalty notices. While on patrol, the officers spotted two people breaching the dog control public spaces protection order by allowing their dogs to exercise off the lead on a marked sports pitch. When the couple were approached, they were uncooperative and refused to give their detail to the officers. We're looking into whether our officers exceeded their remit on this occasion but we will continue to enforce dog control laws on sports pitches. Um, I, I think this, uh, this story is utterly incredible. The man in suit, in his smart suit, using the two, I would say, very intimidating gentlemen in their hoodies to follow an elderly couple for two hours, including into a doctor's surgery where they had to be removed by police. And of course, this, this is all coming and being made possible by the legislation which gives local authorities ever greater power. So I'm going to say we're going to leave it there, but I'm delighted to say that uh, Paul has said he's very happy to be interviewed by the UK column, and we're going to really be able to get into the details of what took place on that day. And I can tell the audience that clearly it has made a huge impact on him, and I suspect Judy as well, uh, a, a very unpleasant experience. So Britain in 2023, uh, meanwhile, um, arms to Ukraine. Well, I'll stop there. Yeah. It's difficult to describe the reality of what's happening in UK. Back Dave, in, sorry. Back in a couple of minutes for extra. Back in a couple of minutes for extra. David and uh, Mark, thanks very much for joining us. If you're a subscriber to UK Column, stay on and join us in extra time. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye.